It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Okay, you guys, I want you to think of a moment that completely changed the trajectory of your life. I mean, you know, in a good way, a bad way. My guest today has had many life-altering moments, many wonderful, and one that most people would see as tragic. But both put him on course for major success. Okay, let me set this up. A little sneak preview of his very impressive resume. He's a Teal Scholarship recipient. Okay, that's where venture capitalist Peter Teal pays you to drop out of college or forego it entirely in order to start a business with Peter as your mentor, which is like gold plus platinum equals fabulosity. And he's founded, led, and sold two successful companies. And that was all before the age of 25. He successfully pitched Mark Cuban, which propelled one company of his into the money-making orbit. But then one fateful night, an accident torpedoed his entire world. But that's hardly the end of this story. I am thrilled to welcome Anthony Zhang to Everyone Talks to Liz. Anthony, your story is one of the most life and business affirming ones my producer Julia McGonigal and I've ever heard because... Each chapter is more and more riveting, but I mean, you're living it. Thank you for being with us. Liz, thank you so much for having me on. You're the son of Chinese immigrants, but you moved around a lot as a kid. I want to pass through that and start with the chapter of your first business, which was reselling used ACT and SAT study books, because when I heard about that, I thought, genius. I've got two kids who are going through that. Take us back to Anthony in high school and the beginning of that business. Yeah, so um, I was in high school in Palo Alto. It was a public high school, but since we were so close to Stanford, uh, the pressure to get into a great college was immense. Um, And, you know, after school, like most kids, I'd go to the gym, go to the YMCA, and I would be actually interacting with folks that went to uh, high school in East Palo Alto, which for people who are not too acquainted with the area is, um, you know, a lot less affluent. A lot of the kids um, are not planning on going to college or any sort of secondary education after college. And the main reason was that they did not know how to prep for standardized testing. So I thought, all right, we've got a ton of test prep books, right? Hundreds and hundreds of pages. Um, let's, let's just be able to share the resources a little bit more. Let's help um, these people who, um, you know, have ambitions to go to college or go to a technical college, be able to do that. And with students like myself who were going through a ton of textbooks and really didn't need them the next year, let's be able to give them away. Um, and that's what we did with my first business. And those things are not cheap. No, they aren't. Well, so what would you do? You'd go around to some of the wealthier kids you knew and said, hey, buddy, you already got accepted to Penn or wherever the hell they got in and, and then say, can I have your old books? Even if they were marked up, people would then pay a discount price for them? Yeah, absolutely. So marked up and uh, um, people actually didn't pay for them. We gave them for free through the Boys and Girls Club. And it was, um, it was a nonprofit, actually. Even better. Did you get a sense, huh, I can wrangle people to do things. And maybe there's an opportunity in my very near future to start an actual profitable business. 
I thought that first taste was, uh, it was a lot of fun, right? Just being able to create something from nothing. Um, but I still had that kind of straight edge track of being like, all right, I got to go to college. I got to get a degree. I got to get an MBA. And then maybe in the future, I'll start a business. That was, I think, always the goal, but it was still that more so traditional path I had in my mind. You got accepted to USC. Uh, what were you majoring in? What at that uh, point got you excited? I was in the entrepreneurship program. That works perfectly. All right. So you're a freshman and you start coming up with an idea to create a business. Tell me about Envoy Now. So Envoy Now was a business I created with my freshman year roommate, Chad. And it really was just born out of our frustrations, right? Um, as college students, we're always hungry, always up late, and we didn't have any good options. So one day, I was hearing one of my friends complaining. It's been like, oh, I'm so hungry. The dining halls are closed. I would literally pay somebody $10 if they could bring me Chipotle. And I was like, wait a second, you'd actually pay $10 because I'll go right now and go run you a burrito. And that was the first <laughs> delivery was just me making 10 bucks. You know, I got a burrito out of the 10 bucks anyway. So I was like, hey, free food. Um, you, and that you, is- You were DoorDash before DoorDash. Exactly. Because DoorDash, I think, started around the same time, if not a little bit earlier on the Stanford campus. So I think, um, you know, college students, very, very much so motivated by food and free things. And that's really how the campus delivery app on Point Out started. We wanted to give students who had free time the ability to make some money on the side and college students and professors on the other side be able to get food delivered. Tell me about the first moment where you put up flyers and you went live. So that was was kind of a crazy night because there were too many people wanting deliveries than I could handle. Uh, My roommate and I were the first two delivery boys. And we had to recruit friends. So we, we literally ran down the hall to be like, hey, who wants to make 50, 60 bucks tonight? Because we have demand for a ton of college students who want food now. Um, and as you know, with uh, hangry customers, they need it now. And we wanted it really, really fast. So we were zooming around on skateboards, on bikes, and just doing whatever we could to get it there as fast as possible. And that was really our edge. It wasn't technology. It wasn't anything fancy. It was just getting there a little bit quicker and having the food be a little bit fresher than the next person. Well, that's the neat thing about entrepreneurs. Uh, You guys sit around and you look and see where there's a need and then you fill it. So that clearly was, was something important that you started to grow. And then I need you to tell me about the day that you called out sick from one of your classes in order to hear Mark Cuban and Mark Burnett give a speech. Oh, yeah, that night you know, really did change my life because I skipped one of my business classes and I, I told that professor actually, I was like, hey, I want to see Mark Cuban. And he was like, look, we have a pitch contest in this class. If you miss it, I'm going to have to dock you. I don't care. And uh, I was like, hey, well, I think I think going to go see my idol, Mark Cuban, is much more important. I don't care if I have a lower grade, right? Um, so I got to go <laughs> see him, and I was really excited. And at the end, our dean, who was the MC for that program, that speech, uh, was like, "Hey, we have some college entrepreneurs that want to pitch you, Mark. Are you are you all right with doing a live impromptu Shark Tank? Right? We got Mark Burnett, the producer." 
you're here right now. I'm sure we've got some students in the audience. And I was just waving my hand like crazy. I wanted to go up and talk to him. And um, I got that opportunity. And Wait, they uh, picked you? They picked me out of the crowd. So they were, were jumping up and down. What were you doing? I was going nuts. I was like, pick me, pick me, Mark. I want to pitch you. Um, <laughs> because that moment was like, who wants to pitch Mark Cuban, right? There was just silence. And then, you know, a couple other teams went up and I was, uh, I was the second one picked. And that night, pitching him changed my life because I got an offer from both Marks. And uh, that was, I think, having someone of that magnitude just believe that my business, you know, my honestly, a side hustle at the time was worth something really, really helped change my perception. It gave me a lot of confidence too. I would think, especially considering you have the guru of identifying possibilities within businesses, and he gets a million thrown in his lap. But, you know, you're kind of understating how this went. As I understand it, didn't Cuban kind of tear you apart up there? Yeah, he was was in full Shark Tank mode that night. And uh, I just didn't back down from it. I knew that if I let him dominate the conversation, then it would just go south, right? Because like a shark, you can kind of sense blood in the water. And I saw him tear the other team before me just to shreds. And I just decided to, hey, this is my one shot. I want to be really, really confident, more confident than I was actually feeling, and uh, walked away with an offer. You walked away with an offer. Uh, they were going to give you some money for a 5% stake in the company. Um, did they want an answer right then and there? So it was just live, right? It was like, hey, is this the deal that you want? Mark Burnett, he was like, hey, 5% stake, $100,000. And while Mark was still grilling me about my financials, I saw that handshake. I went out, shook it. And I was like, hey, this is the deal. There are so many people watching. This is my chance. How did life differ after that night? Oh, well, that night, just getting to chat with Mark Cuban, it was at our uh, campus bar. Uh, just being able to sit in a table next to him and just talk business, it was the most surreal moment of my life. And I don't think there was a longer line to that bar than that night when Mark Cuban was there. But I think the main thing that I walked away with was just belief in myself. Um, I believe that, hey, this is actually a business that I should be putting more and more of my time in. This is something that I can actually pursue and make something of it and potentially be that, that big shot. And then a few months later, after that incredible success, the phone rings and you've got Peter Thiel, the, what, is he a billionaire now? Multi, 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 multi-millionaire who is the, the venture capitalist out there. Mm-hmm. And he wants to make you an offer. What year was this? You were a junior at this point, sophomore? I think I was a sophomore. Yeah, I was, I think I was 19, um, getting that call from his program director. First of all, just explaining to me what the Teal Fellowship is, which is a two year program where Peter Teal gives you $100,000, no strings attached. It's a grant. The only thing is that he wants you to drop out of school and fully, fully pursue it. So that was. I think another really huge moment to be like, all right, you have all this momentum going, you know, you're focusing more on your business than school at that point. Um, and then you have a hundred thousand reasons to drop out of college and to have two billionaires pointing me that way. It was, I was like, Hey, I, I got to listen to them. 
Well, can you just tell me, though, what your parents said? <laughs> because you're at SC. <laughs> By the way, not an easy school to get into. It's like a golden ticket once you graduate. Uh, I guess a different kind of currency than $200,000 in maybe you'll make it, maybe you won't kind of money. But what did your parents say? Well, when, when they heard about the Teal Fellowship, they were like, what is what, what is this guy even thinking, right? Like, it's just the complete opposite of college, right? You're, you're paying money to get an education. He's like, I'll pay you money not to get that education. And it was, it was definitely a tough conversation. But I think what really got them over the hump is just talking to current and past Teal Fellows that had gone through that same experience. So um, I was really, really grateful that these other, you know, kind of older entrepreneurs were willing to give that time because, you know, I'm sure they've had that same tough conversation with their parents. And, you know, I told my parents, hey, it's, it's just two years, right? I can always come back to school, but I can't pass up on this, right? And, you know, I froze my credits. They're still there to this day. And I was like, hey, I'll come back to school in a few years. You know, if the business doesn't work out, it's fine. And I'm fully supporting myself, right? I got this money. You don't need to worry about me, mom and dad. And that's, that's really got him to, to at least agree. Well, you know, I remember on a much smaller scale, I was accepted to graduate school in journalism at SC and Berkeley. But I said to my parents, I've really studied this and, I, and you can't really learn how to cover a plane crash by sitting in a classroom. So I think I'm going to turn down getting that degree, that higher degree. And <laughs> my dad said, you know us, Liz. We're all about piling it higher and deeper. More education, the better shot you have. But you know your world better than we do. And so they supported me in it. And I got a head start. That's awesome. I think so, that piece is so important. Yeah. Well, I, I'm thinking another Peter Thiel-backed uh, guy who just launched an IPO is Austin Russell. Yeah. Of Luminar. Wow. I mean, he's just, he's been on the show. He's been unbelievable. Um, so you, clearly you, you did a very, very uh, good move there by, by saying yes, but they spotted you. That to me is, is just so amazing. So Mark Cuban, Mark Burnett, Peter Thiel, everyone sees everything in you. Envoy now is taking off and suddenly everything comes crashing down. Your world was hit by a life altering shock. What happened? So about four and a half years ago, I dove into a pool. I completely shattered my C5 vertebrae on impact. And what that did when that bone fractured was it damaged my spinal cord. I was instantly became a quadriplegic. And what that means is I could not move anything below my shoulders. So I was just floating in the pool, immediately knowing something wrong, but at that moment did not really understand the gravity of the injury because I think a spinal cord injury and a brain injury, those are probably the only two things that a human body can't really recover from. It's not like a broken leg or a broken back where you may do years of rehab or months of rehab and your back's the same. Um, your nervous system and your spinal cord cannot heal. So I was instantly paralyzed from the neck down I was in an ICU for five weeks, hmm. fighting for my life and on a ventilator for the next five months. So I completely had to relearn everything again, um, how to breathe by myself, how to even feed myself. And, uh, you know, 
everything else that comes comes with it. At that point, were there, I'm sure, very, very dark days and nights where you thought, I can't live like this? Yeah. I mean, you go from just high flying, right? My business was my life at that point. And, you know, getting to meet so many great new people and, you know, hiring people. And it was, it was really just the dream. And um, going from that to fighting for my life, staring at a ceiling in an ICU and really not being able to move anything. And it was definitely some of the darkest days of my life uh, would definitely not be, be where I am today if it weren't for my now fiance, McKenna. She actually made the decision to drop out of college the moment that I got hurt and really be there for me full time. So even when, even when there were no beds in the ICU, she was sitting in a chair sleeping and just watching me to make sure I was okay. Um, and, you know, in, in the rehab center, she was the one pushing me when I wanted to give up. She was the one telling me that I should get out of bed when I wanted to just stay there forever. And um, I have, uh, you know, I have my life to, to thank for her and I owe, her, I owe her everything. We love McKenna. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so you're, you're recovering. But four months into this recovery, as if to pile it higher and deeper, your business partners show up and tell you, you know what, we got to shut this business down. Business isn't working out. What was your response? Because to me, it would be so easy to say, well, have at it, guys. I can't move. I've got to just even get back to basic functioning. Yeah, that was uh, absolutely shocking to me because... For those first four months, you know, they were, they were there for me, right? They were, they were like, hey, Anthony, we will do anything for you, right? We're, we're going to be stepping up. We're going to be helping to make sure Envoy Now is all right. We're going to be handling everything that you handled as a CEO. So I really didn't give it a second thought because I fully trusted them. And to just get that call from them, my co-founders and my executive team being like, hey, we're giving in our two weeks. I'm like, two weeks? You, you can't give two weeks to a company that you co-founded. That's, that's not, that's not absolutely not something you can do. And just something inside me was just like, I'm not going to let this go. Right. This is, this was like a, such a big part of my identity at the time. And that was something that I really, really was clinging onto because, you know, my, my body was broken. You know, my life was turned upside down, but my mind wasn't, I could, I could still be there. And I think I could still lead the company so after they left, I, I called up all of our lead investors, all of our remaining employees, and was like, hey, I'm calling from the hospital bed right now. I want to come back as CEO, and I want to see if you'll stay with me and you'll help me help this company get to an acquisition because I think we've built something of value. There are people's livelihoods depending on the success and failure of this company, and I think we can actually get to an acquisition. So if you can give me six months of your best efforts, six months of 200%, at least we can say we tried and at least we can part ways feeling good about it. Um, and thankfully they were there to support me and, um, you know, just being able to focus on the business again after, um, you know, after months of just focusing on being able to move something that I couldn't move or being able to do something that was completely, um, you know, a second nature to me that now I need to relearn. Um, it helped me really balance my life. It was almost a form of therapy in itself. And it was a great outcome in the end. We were able to get that acquisition. 
We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listen Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You sold to a company called Joyrun and then you could have kind of rested on your laurels and hung out on some pretty significant money, couldn't you? Yeah, it was a lot of fun doing that. But that was really at the time where you know the Hollywood Me Too movement was happening. And a lot of news came out with founders, you know, female entrepreneurs, founders from disadvantaged backgrounds, minorities, people of color. Um, they were all coming up with stories, these horror stories about how these huge venture capitalists had mistreated them, you know, either sexually propositioning them, making racist comments. And, you know, it just really, really did not sit right with me because as a, you know, as a man who went to you know, a good school, got connections, I really, you know, did not face any of those challenges. And I, I had pitched and talked to the same people that were in the news and just knowing that it was such an uneven playing field the fact that these VCs had so much more power than the entrepreneur, um, I thought that there just needed to be a little bit more responsibility. And that's when I created my second business, Know Your VC. So Know Your VC is essentially a Yelp or a glass door for entrepreneurs to rate VCs and also other VCs to rate VCs. You also taught them how to successfully pitch to venture capitalist firms. Um, you know, again, being at a disadvantage when you don't have the slick teachers look at USC who were in your entrepreneur classes who would say, you got to get it down to, you know, two minutes and 30 seconds and you got to make eye contact. There are people who aren't taught those kinds of things. So you were able to wrangle your experience and experts and how that must have been so fulfilling for you. Yeah, it was really just something where I just thought entrepreneurs deserve better. It's already really, really hard to start and run your own business. And then just to be shut down because you didn't know kind of a, you know, an inside trick of the trade or just to, you know, waste your time with the VC that's just going to be spinning your wheels and not actually going to fund you or, you know, thinking someone was really great and then having an awful experience once they're on your board, right? These are all things that can really, really just ruin a company. I wanted people to be accountable, right? Whether, Whether good or bad. So that's really why I wanted to build that company. And I'm, I'm glad that you know, it's been used by tens of thousands of entrepreneurs. You built Know Your VC, you sold Know Your VC. You took a step after that away from startups, worked at Blockfolio, but the entrepreneurial bug, here we are today, has hit you again. This is in your DNA. I mean, you can't shake this feeling that you've just got to start a business. Yeah. So while I was working at Blockfolio, you know, it's a cryptocurrency 
portfolio tracker and exchange. So if you're crazy enough to invest in the crypto, you're, you're pretty open-minded, right, in terms of investing. And that was when I think I, uh, I read an article that was talking about investing in wine and how the returns from investing in wine had actually beaten out the S&P 500 over the past 30 years. So I was like, huh, that's, that's pretty cool. I, w- I wonder why that is. And as I started digging deeper, uh, it just all made sense to me. You know, wine is one of those rare things that actually get better with age. As it ages in the bottle, it, you know, the flavors improve and it becomes more desirable. And just from a pure fundamentals and economic standpoint, it's something that not only has just fixed supply and growing demand as time goes on, it actually has decreasing supply, right? Because if you drink a bottle of wine, uh, it's gone forever. You can never undrink something from the year 2000. So um, the fundamentals made sense to me. I was like, all right, I want to invest in wine. And if, uh, if it goes bad, at least I'll have a bunch of nice wine, right? It doesn't seem like the worst thing to invest in. And the problem I discovered really, really quickly was that you either had to be born into a really connected wine family or you had to be really, really wealthy to get started because uh, the various entries such as having the connections to the right wine brokers or being invited to participate in high-end auctions, um, they were huge, right, to someone with no connections. And then you got to think about the storage, right? I didn't have a wine cellar at the time. Uh, it's, it's very, very expensive to have one in your home and you need the space for it and, and the insurance, right? Um, if you don't take care of it, it's, it's going to go bad and it's going to be worth nothing. And I realized that you pretty much needed, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of wealth to even buy a single bottle of wine and properly manage it over time. And I was like, huh, this, this wine thing has been invested in and collected in for hundreds of years, right? Our founding fathers like Thomas Jefferson had collected bottles and sold them too. And why is this asset class only available for the ultra wealthy today? I really wanted to create a solution, not only for myself, but just for everyday investors who could maybe discover something that they never knew was investable. And that, that's really where Vino Vest came about. Vino Vest. It's fascinating. It, you know, for somebody, I'm not an expert, but I, I sit there and I say, well, is it Manischewitz or is it Petrus? I mean, that's how bad I am on these things. But I've talked to people who are so, <laughs> so expert in this, these onophiles, and they're saying, oh, oh, this Beaujolais and this vintage and the de Rothschilds. So I'm just curious, what's the most valuable vintage right now that's out there, or at least one of them? I think right now the the 2000 vintage is really, really coming into its prime because, you know, just the number 2000, you know, start of a new millennium, that's already a huge premium, especially for the Bordeaux and Burgundies. And then you add to the fact that, you know, a lot of these wines that are being produced, they just get better and better with age. When they're at that 20 to 30 year range is when they really start hitting their peak. So from a pricing standpoint, you know, the, the wines that were from the 2000 vintage have um, not just doubled, but they're almost like, you know, six, seven times their value with the highest ones being over 10x their value. So it's, you know, if you have a, a tenfold increase in the last 20 years, it's pretty incredible returns. So VinoVest allows people to buy, invest in, and then sell, not necessarily drink these wines, but still make that buck after holding it for several years? Absolutely. So we help you store it. We help you access 
to buy and sell through our platform. And if you wanted to, you actually could drink it. I think that's kind of the fun part as well of the platform because wine has utility, right? And uh, we allow people to own those whole bottles and cases themselves. So mm-hmm. say you have you know, a few good years of investing and uh, you know, an anniversary comes up or a birthday comes up. You know, why not enjoy a nice bottle of wine with, with, uh, you know, with whatever you're celebrating with? How do you guys make money? So we charge storage and management fees. So for actually taking care of the wine, making sure that's fully insured in perfect condition, and then also giving you the access and the recommendations on when to buy, when to sell, when's that peak drinking window. Um, that's what we charge for. And it's a you know, sliding percentage, but it ranges from 2% to 2.85%. Okay, I'm going to push you on this and you push back. I think some of these people in the wine industry are so full of it. They say, oh, it's a fruity bouquet with undertones of cocoa and raspberry. There's no cocoa in it. There's no raspberry. Who even knows what they're talking about? And if they were given a cup of two buck chuck versus this wine, could they really tell the difference? Yeah, that, that's the interesting part, right? Is, is wine is so subjective. But on the investing side, we don't really care what the wine tastes like. We don't care what the end user likes to drink. We're like, hey, Put your, put your taste preferences out the window. I don't care if you drink $1,000 bottles or you know, $10 bottles. We want to make you the best return. So we take a really quantitative approach, right? We say, all right, what are the things that actually matter? You know, it's, it's supply, it's, it's demand, it's uh, critic scores, it's satellite harvest data, it's social media sentiment. So that's the stuff that we look at and that we care about when we're making these wine decisions because... Um, sure, you know, the end user is going to like it, but we really care about what are the inputs from a data-driven standpoint that can create wine that, that lasts and that will appreciate over time. Are you guys profitable yet? So we're not profitable yet. We are lucky to be funded uh, by VCs. Um, but the good thing is that from a business model standpoint, you know, we are revenue generating. We are operationally cash flow positive, and we want to you know, at least for the time being, still focused on growth and growing our team until we get to a point where we decide to flip the switch to profitability. VinoVest. I, I find this so fascinating. You know, you just said it's very subjective. Art is very subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the oldest bottle of wine you've ever opened and was it worth it? Oldest bottle of wine. All right. So I think it was a bottle of 1958 Chateau Aubryon, and it was with my now future mother-in-law, Marcy, um, and it was for her 60th birthday. So something so perfect, you know, a bottle of wine that's 60 years old. It's really a piece of history at that point. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the wine had actually gone bad. The cork <laughs> completely ruined. You know, it's a bottle of wine that was thousands of dollars. But I think just the fact that we were even just appreciating the wine so much before opening it, right? Just thinking about how many owners it had before us, you know, what life was like for those winemakers in 1958, what the harvest was like, you know, what the world was like, just all, all of the, I think the imagination it made us create, I think that was completely worth it in itself. And, you know, the wine was bad, who cares? We had a younger wine anyways later, but it was something that I'll never forget. Trust me, Manischewitz is so much cheaper. Absolutely. 
Oh, I wish you the best of luck. You know, as, as you leave us here, I really want our listeners to know from you what brought you through the most difficult of times uh, beyond your fiance being right there to help you? Because, you know, there's so many moments where you could have just said, I give up. Mm-hmm. I think it's really just belief in yourself because I knew that, you know, I was able to get from where I was with knowing, knowing nothing, right? No college degree to building something of a business. Um, and of course, there's so many, so many moments where I'm like, oh, life is, life is tough, right? Living, being bound to a wheelchair and having to spend a lot more time on doing things that people just do in seconds. But um, I think just believing that I can build something amazing, believing that people are improving their lives and be able to create more wealth because of the company that I'm building, um, that just drives me. And it's, it's really, I think, something that has just gained more and more momentum as I've grown older. Anthony Zhang, I love your story. I hope our listeners seize upon this and understand that what you have done is nothing short of extraordinary, even without the accident jumping into there. But, uh, you know, to, to say simply that, oh, this was a horrible thing, you know, maybe it made you work a little bit harder and, and reach a little bit further. Yeah. I mean, I really had to dig deep. And the thing is, like, if I can go through that, I can really go through anything. I love it. Thank you so much for telling us your story. We so appreciate it. And uh, you know what? You should come on the show because we talk about investing in all different kinds of asset classes. And Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Claim and Countdown, we'll definitely send you an invitation. Great to have you, Anthony. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, we're so grateful and so appreciative. Aren't these the best freaking stories? Thank you very much. We'll, We'll see you next time. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.